0: Pray that whatever it is that is satisfying our soul apart from you, that you would rip it from our hearts, that you would show it to be the finite thing that it is, so that you who are infinitely good and satisfying might fill our souls in the way that you created them to be filled. Father, that your word fill us in a way that only it can do as it is the revelation of who you are. And Father, just uh, thank you for these, these next few moments, these very short, brief moments as we get to take a look at your word. Father, I pray that it would change the heart of your people and those who are not yet your people, that their hearts would be changed to see you for who you are. And uh, Father, I uh, thank you so much. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 14. We're again clipping right along here in the book of Luke. Uh, let me encourage you with a couple things as we uh, as we get going through uh, the passage today. Kind of a repeat, uh, repeat of some of the things I've encouraged you guys over the past particular few weeks. One is this. I encourage you strongly to do this. To set aside momentarily everything you know about following Jesus so that we can approach the text. Um, because I think you'll be surprised at how much garbage there is uh, that you have when it comes to what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, We have lots of traditions, lots of uh, things that we thought, well, this is what a Christ follower looks like, and I want to encourage you to set those aside, because honestly, for some of us, for example, following Jesus meant that when we were in middle school that we got rid of all of our non-Christian CDs, right? Anybody do that in here? Uh, I said I was going to, and then I never did. I liked weird Al Yankovic too much. For some of you, following Jesus means not drinking alcohol. For some of you, means following Jesus means not getting divorced, and that makes me a good Christian. For some of you, following Jesus just means very simply reading your Bible every day, and as long as I do that, then, then that's what it means to follow Jesus. So let's set aside momentarily, I'm not telling you to, to throw it all out the window, but I just want to remind us that the text interprets our reality, not our reality interprets the text. So what we've experienced in life needs to be interpreted and understood through the lens of the Bible, not through our subjective lens in our finite sinful natures. So we need to understand what we've experienced in life through what the Word of God and how the Word of God would help us to understand those things. So what we want to do is we want to set aside these things as much as possible for a few moments and ask God to do that so that then we can look at the text and go, what is, the, what is Jesus teaching, what is Luke talking about here in Luke 14, and then take that and filter what we've experienced or the, 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 uh, the thoughts that we have about following Jesus. We can filter that through that, toss out the stuff that's garbage, and keep the stuff that's rich and good and help us in our growth. The second thing I would encourage us to do is to take care to hear. Uh, we talked about it a few weeks ago, and if you missed that sermon, that's okay. Um, but what we found, I think, in Luke is that when we hear the Word of God, one of two things happen. There is no middle road. One of two things happen. Your heart is either softened towards God or it's hardened towards God. So you either hear the Word of God and you're softened towards God, or you hear the Word of God and you're hardened. There is no sitting passively along um, we either grow closer to God or we're falling further away. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Luke fourteen, the last half of verse thirty-five. He says, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." There's a lot that he's saying there, but we need to take care to hear. We need to listen intently. Use our Bibles and remember that much. I want to encourage us much of the implications and applications of the text. Um, I'm not going to be able to talk about today. We don't have time. Uh there's going to you have to take the time to work through the text yourself this week and go wow this needs this impacts my life here and this impacts my life here and this needs to change my life here and the gospel wants to do this in my life here all from the text we don't have time to do that even if we were only preaching on five verses we still wouldn't have the time to cover all of that for your very unique individual life so I want to encourage you to do that I always say this I don't think you can faithfully listen to this text and it not change your life this week. I would say that with every text. I don't think you can faithfully listen and study this text and not be changed this week. So if you hear the text today and something does not change this week, then I think you need to check something going on in your heart, something in your life. Something should come about. The gospel is about transforming our lives. And that's not something that just happens every six months. You know what I'm saying? It should be something that happens daily, hourly. So the power of God's word is so strong, it's too strong. Just ask God to make your heart soft, fertile ground, ready for seeds of glorious truth to be planted. I would even ask you in this moment, encourage you in this moment to say, God, make my heart soft to hear the word of God. So with those two encouragements, let's begin. So what does it mean to follow Jesus. That's kind of where we're, we're talking about today. We've, we've kind of turned a corner. Jesus has spent most of the first part of Luke talking about who he is. Just, just simply getting the disciples to understand that he is the son of God, the Messiah that has come. Now he's turned towards, headed towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, and he says, and now we're talking about what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to follow Jesus? So I ask that question to you today. In your mind, what are the first couple things that come to mind when you think of what does it mean to follow Jesus? Again, some of that means we just had to throw away all of our Christian CDs and live like a monk on top of a big, you know, monastery thing. You know, one person I know, when, it, when answering the question of what it means to follow Jesus, one person I know would say it means we need to be intellectual champions. Another person would mean we need to be social workers. Another person would say, well, we need to be money-making people. We should have wealth. Another person may be political activists. That's what we should be as Christians. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to go pick it and, and stand in, in line when you disagree with something. Another person would answer the question, well, just love Jesus. Let's get rid of this doctrine thing and, and the whole instituted church and things like that. and Let's just love Jesus. And that's what it means to follow Jesus is to get rid of all these other things. Or maybe someone a bit more spiritual would say, well, it's, it means calling upon the name of the Lord by quoting scripture in order to bind God into giving you what you want. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Another person might answer the question of what it means to follow Jesus is you have to live in material blessing. If you don't have material blessing, then God does not have favor with you and you're not following Jesus well. You don't have enough faith. You know, when we think about this following Jesus, I'm afraid that many churches have marketed Jesus in such a way to make him more palatable. We've made Jesus what we think is more tasty. For example, our Jesus, our Jesus will give you your best life now, or our Jesus will give you five steps to better parenting. Our Jesus will give you free coffee if you just come to our service. Our Jesus provides children's ministry equipped with an indoor playground. Our Jesus doesn't judge. He's accepting of all people. Our Jesus would never send anyone to hell. He's too good for that. Our Jesus wants you to give your best to him, and then you can do whatever you want with the rest. You know, I'm reminded when we think about this kind of marketing of God and and Jesus, you attract people, you know, and I just want to give us kind of a why we do some of the things we do here as a church is oftentimes when you, what you attract people with is what you keep them with. And so if you bring people in because you have this big fancy thing going on, and not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, okay? I'm not saying we're more holy because we meet in a gym. Don't, don't hear me say that, okay? But oftentimes what you attract people with is what you keep them. And we don't, again, I'm not saying we would never have a big fancy building, but... What we want to attract people with is lives that are transformed by the gospel, a life that looks like they're following Jesus, not attract them with the cool things that our money can buy in this world. So do we want to be attractional as a church? Absolutely, just not with material stuff. We want to be attractional with lives that are transformed the gospel. that say instead of maybe having this over here we're going to give that so that give that up so that we can give to this need over here. So how churches today, I think, oftentimes have marketed Jesus, they've done it just simply to make Him more palatable. But what does Jesus want from His followers? I mean, how does Jesus market Himself? How does He describe Himself? What, is he, how does, it, what does it mean to follow Christ? What are some of the distinctives of a Christ follower. And I know some of us growing up in church, we've heard this a thousand times. What does it mean to follow Jesus? But I hope maybe with fresh eyes today you see the text. Jesus probably demands more of you than what you realize, even if you've been in church your whole life. So this morning, just to give you kind of a guide of where we're going today, we're going to work through a sentence. Um, We're going to work through a sentence. The sentence is this. True followers of Jesus are compassionate people, acting in humility and love, enjoying God's undeserved grace, and in living for Christ's dreams and desires. I know if you trying to write that down, if you're type A and trying to get all that down, and you did not, it's okay, you'll get it. Uh, so let me repeat that again, though, for you, uh, if your heart is anxious now because you didn't get it all. True followers of Jesus are compassionate people, acting in humility and love, enjoying God's undeserved grace, and living for Christ's dreams and desires. Now, I don't think that that's all there is to following Christ, but that's simply, I think, what we see from this passage this morning. That would be kind of a sentence that would kind of encapsulate what Luke tells us here in verse 14. So let's begin with this sentence. True followers of Jesus are compassionate people. Compassionate people. Let's begin. Luke chapter 14. Let me encourage you, if you have your Bible, it will make the next hour seem much shorter if you follow along uh, with us in uh, in this passage. So Luke chapter 14 verse 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully, watching Jesus, that is, carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, Will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. So, right here from the very beginning of this passage, what we are going to see is Christ is going to be comparing for us the life of an apparent religious person with the life of someone who's truly religious. And what I don't mean is just someone who has some sort of flippant religion. What I mean is someone who is truly a follower of Jesus versus someone who is a follower of whatever religion they've created or chosen to follow. So he's going to give that kind of distinction all the way through this text. And first, he begins with compassionate people versus non-compassionate people. So here we go. Here's the story. Jesus is eating at the house of a Pharisee. Now, let's not assume that Jesus is here by invitation, like a friendly invitation, like maybe he has been in the past. I think what's going on here is Jesus is being watched carefully. They're looking for a chance to catch Jesus, particularly related to his healing on the Sabbath. Remember, he'd already done this, and they did not like this. He'd already healed. And understand that the law to not heal on the Sabbath was just a tradition was not scripture, was not law. You can't find that. Like, the Pharisees are living by that. It's not in the Old Testament, That law. it, It was a tradition that had become law. You see, these traditions that the Pharisee had and the Pharisees had, particularly this one, was created with a good intention, so they created. So what happens? They they wanted to obey the law of of remembering the Sabbath and keep it holy and resting on the Sabbath. That they wanted to do that. So in order to to help ensure that they would keep the Sabbath, they created all these other like rules, if you will, traditions. So we're not going to do anything medically related unless it's absolutely necessary on the Sabbath in order to ensure that we keep this law to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But what had happened is that these traditions had become so important that they began to trump the heart and desire of God. They had become a means, essentially, of avoiding the heart of God. The traditions had become a way or means of avoiding the heart of God. So, let's think about this for just a second. Let me me help us here. God's laws are perfect, and if we know anything about the law in the Old Testament, we know that we are unable to keep them as God requires, right? We're not able to do that. If you think you can, you're a fool. We're unable to do it. The law is there to show us our brokenness and our need for a Savior. We're unable to keep the law. So, what does man do? Man creates laws that they're able to keep. Laws that are maybe close to the laws in God, or maybe laws that are even seemingly beyond, like would keep us even further from breaking the law. But we create ones that we're actually able to keep. And that's going to be important. We're going to build on this thought this morning. So by keeping these laws that we've created, or these traditions... We're able to avoid the law of God, therefore feeling as though we actually have favor with God. So because we're keeping our laws, our traditions, and yet still breaking the laws of God, we can somehow think that we are the ones earning favor with God, and we're actually accomplishing this task apart from Jesus Christ. So let me give you an example. That might be a little hard to understand. Let me give you an example. Romans 12 and Hebrews 10, you can go look at those later. Romans 12, Hebrews 10 paint a wonderful picture about what community within the body of Christ looks like. What genuine community looks like. Followers of Jesus whose lives are so entangled that they wouldn't know what to do without each other. Right? So this is what the community of God is supposed to look like. Romans 12, Hebrews 10, and in other passages alike Followers who know intimately the struggles of their brothers and sisters. Followers who seek not freedom and independence, but instead give up theirs for their good and others and their good. This is what true gospel community looks like. It looks like where I'm giving preference to other people. Sacrificing for other people. Now what happens is man wanting to avoid that, because that's going to cost us a lot. That's why we don't see it happen today. So that's going to cost us. That idea of living in community as Christians is going to cost us. I mean, I grew up in church my whole life. And if I knew more than someone's name and address and maybe the names of their kids, it was a wonderful thing. That's not what community looks like. It's much more deeper than that. It's more intense, it's more intimate than that. And particularly this generation or my generation wanting to avoid this kind of sacrifice and this kind of limiting of freedom, because there is, when you're submitting to a group of people, you lose a lot of freedom. We have created, I think, over the past, particularly a number of generations, our own tradition so that we can avoid actually living out what community actually looks like. So let me, let me read to you a quote, if you know who Timothy Keller is. He says this, you, he's talking of my generation, you are the generation most afraid of real community because it inevitably limits freedom and choice. And I like what he says here, get over your fear. So what happens is what I think we've created, and if you've been in the church for any extended period of time, you've heard this phrase, well, we go to church every time the doors are open, right? Anybody here heard that phrase? Come on, raise your hand if you've heard that phrase. When we go to church, and maybe even grew up, right? You grew up going to church every time the doors were open. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, How many people in your life, in that experience, felt that that's what made them a good Christian? Because I went to church every time the doors were open. I live that way. Because I went to church, because I went every time the doors were open, that makes me a good Christian. Now let me ask you this, can you go to church every time the doors are open and completely avoid real community? Can you do that and not know anyone beyond maybe the word on their face and their annoying laugh? Can you do that? Absolutely. 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 But can you do that and then still feel like you're a Christian and a good Christian and you have favor with God because you've been there every time the doors were open? Can you do that? Absolutely. And many people do that. So here their tradition has actually created a means for them to avoid the actual heartbeat of God. I think God's less concerned that you go to church every time the doors are open compared to his concern that you live in deep, heartfelt, intimate community with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it becomes, my my point is is to give us an example of what's coming from the text in our modern life, of where they have taken a tradition, and it's actually created for them a means to feel right with God, yet be very, very far from God. So we can come to church every time the doors are open, yet be very, 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 very far from God, but yet think we are very, very, very close to God. You see, truly being involved in a community of faith means, because here's kind of the flip side of this, if you're truly involved in a community of faith, what's going to happen is you are going to selflessly and sacrificially love God's people in such a way that you don't want to miss Spending time with them. You don't want to miss what happened in their life last week. You're so excited about what the gospel is doing and changing your brothers' and sisters' lives and your lives that you don't want to miss a thing. And I would ask you, if you're experiencing true community with the body of Christ and not this legalistic, traditional bull crap that many of us have grown up with, then there's a sense in which we're going to love being with our people we going to love spending time with them and knowing like, what's going on in their lives and seeing God change their lives. But this is precisely what the Pharisees had done. This tradition of not doing anything medical on the Sabbath now became their means to avoid caring for those who God cares deeply about. God's heartbeat was compassion on this man who was broken. But they didn't want to get their hands dirty. Right? So in community, where this kind of ties to us in a practical example today is we don't want to get our hands dirty getting into other people's lives because then we might get offended or we might be disgusted at what's the sin that's going on deep in their lives. Or or better yet, they might not like me if they know the sin that's deep inside of my heart. So this is the same thing that's going on in the Pharisees. I don't want to get my hands dirty. I don't want to have to give up my life or sacrifice my life to help this person who's in pain. So instead, what I've done, I've got this law over here that is not God's law that helps me actually avoid doing the very heart of God. This tradition had become their means of avoiding what God would have them to do. If you're not a follower of Christ today, or maybe you don't know what that means... Um, I, want to add, I wonder this question, what kind of religion are you attracted to? If you're not a follower of Christ, what kind of religion are you attracted to? Most people are attracted to a religion that they can do. Most people are attracted to a religion that is possible for them to do, where, where there is a checklist of do's and don'ts, and where they can feel secure, ultimately, in their own doing. So you've given me a list, I can do this, do this, do this, do this, so that I then in return can feel confident that I'm doing everything I need to do in order to be right with God or right with the universe or whatever else it might be. Most people are attracted to that. Every other religion in the world is that way. It is about what I'm doing right, wrong, in order to accomplish whatever my end goal is, versus what someone else did and accomplished in my place. And it's not dependent upon what I can do or don't do, but what He did. So, my other question would be, if you're not a follower of Christ, is what motivation do you have for showing compassion to other people? Maybe to earn some sort of good standing with God? Now, as a Christ follower, if you consider yourself one who follows Christ, Jesus' religion is not attractive according to this worldly standards, or to worldly standards. Jesus shows God's compassion to this poor man who is made in the image of God. We want a Jesus that's nice and clean and convenient for our paycheck and convenient for our time schedule. This was not convenient for them. But instead, God cares for this man. God wants to help this man, this guy with dropsy. See, let me make another comment. Like on the whole Sabbath rest thing here, like it's meant to be a reminder of our ultimate rest in Jesus. It's not meant to be a law, again, that helps us avoid the heart of God. It's meant to be a blessing. I mean, they're completely missing the point of the Sabbath. So, as so we move on to the text, so Jesus shows compassion on this man, right? The tradition doesn't get in his way, he heals the man with dropsies. I mean, any law that forbids you from showing compassion to someone cannot be a law of God's. Now, don't confuse compassion with condoning, okay? Just because you help someone in need doesn't mean, it's not the same as saying your whole lifestyle is acceptable and I applaud you and approve, right? So, for instance, clearly if biblically God is against homosexuality, but we can still show compassion. Like, like, to say homosexuality and I've got to stay far away from that is, to again, to miss the heart of God. That doesn't mean we approve of it. It doesn't mean we applaud it. But we can still show compassion. Like, say their car needs fixed. Go help them. Show them compassion. Again, you're going to take something in the law of God that he's against and use that to help avoid the heart of God. Right? So, also don't underst- don't and, and understand what you're showing compassion to. Right, needs, needs in that person's life. Like, political activism on their behalf may not be what they need. Does that make sense? Okay. So Jesus here shows compassion on this man, and the tradition doesn't get in his way. So let's talk about the dropsies. Anybody kind of dropsies? I think of. Drops, he's like, we call people like that butterfingers, you know? Just kind of drop everything. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, If you're in the medical field, which we have a couple of those here today, uh, from what I can tell, it's it's very, very short. It's kind of like a collection of fluid, and it usually happens in the legs, uh, oftentimes associated with congestive heart failure. So it's kind of what's going on. That's just what was happening to this man. Uh, I'm not going further than that because my degree is not in that area. This was a cause, though, for compassion from Christ, and should have been a cause for compassion from the Pharisees. Now, they may not have been able to heal him, but they didn't want to show compassion on him at all. You see, their tradition conveniently relieved them of doing what they ultimately didn't want to do, and that was get their hands dirty. So we avoid the kind of community where they might tell us that maybe that life decision is a bad idea, or this choice is a bad idea, because we, want, we avoid the kind of community where that would happen so that we can ultimately just do what we want to do. I mean, the, the Pharisees did this very thing. They created their own laws so as to avoid the will of God. So, Jesus heals the man. Then he sends him away. Now, understand, he sent him away because this man would not have been welcome at that dinner. Understand that? Like, someone would have had to have invited him in momentarily, so I don't think it's a far stretch, but it is a, a tad bit of speculation. I think what happened is the Pharisees invited the man as a, kind of as a trap for Jesus. And then Jesus sends him away afterwards. Uh, notice the appropriate irony too in the sentence, that these teachers of the law, two times in a matter of seven verses, Luke records that they had nothing to say. And the presence of truth They were speechless, had nothing to say. I want to remind us that legalists are only concerned about laws that they can keep. You go to someone who is legalistic and you show them laws that they can't keep, and uh, they're probably not going to like you too much any further. So what about you? What about us? What traditions do you submit yourself to? Let's think about that. What traditions do you submit yourself to? Maybe it's the community issue. Maybe that's, that's your way of earning righteousness is by being at church every time the doors are open. Maybe your laws are not quite so spiritual looking. <laughs> Maybe it's the cleanliness of your kids' rooms. Maybe this is so that you can conveniently stay frustrated with them so as not to have to engage their hearts and lead them to a Savior. So the rooms stay the rooms are dirty and you get mad at them and for some of you who don't have kids old enough to worry about that yet, but um, maybe I maybe I, I've created this law that this is the standard of which they must live by and if they don't then this is the way I'm going to treat them. And then that then somehow in a very sick twisted way it allows me to then just be annoyed with them when they do not do what they're supposed to do created this tradition, and I'm now making other people live by that same tradition around me. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have a standard of, like, you need to have a clean room, but the question is, why? Am I doing that because it's my tradition and my standard that, that you have to keep, and this is helping me avoid something else that needs to happen in my heart, or is it just because I'm trying to teach them life skills, and this is being an exercising dominion over their territory, you know? Um, what is it? Maybe your, tradition is, maybe your tradition is this. Now, this might hit a little closer to home. Is the priority of caring for your family via a paycheck? And you go, whoa, I thought the Bible said I was supposed to earn and take care of my family. Well, absolutely, clearly. I mean, Paul even says that if a man does not work, don't let him eat, right? If he doesn't provide for his family, don't let him eat. I mean, it's clearly a command of God. But what if that law you've now, this priority of taking care of the family helps you to avoid community and covenant within that community in order to upkeep this over here. And I would would say this, here's where I think where the key would come in is well maybe your standard of living needs to change. Now if you're not willing to to change your standard of living, then maybe this has become a, a law for you in such a way that it should not be. Maybe Maybe you have now placed your trust in this this law in such a way that and elevated the idea of providing for my family that, that now I can avoid doing the other things that God has called me to do. We can flesh that out in house gatherings this week, but we have to think through this more than just simply super pious religious stuff. I think for many of us, these laws and traditions that we live by are not quite so obvious. So, I encourage you to think through that this week. So, what traditions do you submit yourself to? How do you evaluate the traditions that you have? Jesus evaluated them by going to Scripture, by saying, This is what the Word of God says. He doesn't say you can't heal on the Sabbath. I think this is where our belief in the authority of Scripture is very crucial. Because Scripture is not meant to like tie us down. Scripture is meant to set us free. So instead of being tied down to our stupid traditions, we're set free to live as God's created us to be. Um, if you think about it this way, when is, a, when is a train most free? Like a railroad train, when is it most free? Is it when it's like flying through the woods off of the track? I mean, because that's the way our world views freedom. That it's, it's most good and it's, most, the most, you're the, it's the most freeing when the railroad track is able to do and go wherever it wants to. No, that railroad, that train engine was designed, was created to experience the most freedom as it sits on the track. Right? The same thing with our lives. God has created us in such a way that ex- to experience the most freedom within the way that He has set out for us. It's not most free when we just get to do whatever in the world we feel like doing. So, belief in the authority of God will really help us in evaluating our traditions. What are the things that we're submitting to above and beyond the Word of God? And, and I, hear, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that all tradition is bad, okay? not saying that. Like, like, we sing hymns here, like, that's traditional, right? Uh, maybe not in a traditional way, but, like, we sing here, that's tradition, and that's okay. That's good. There's lots of good things about tradition. We can learn lots from tradition. It's just not the Word of God, right? So, all right. So, last comment, we should be thankful for Christ's compassion, right? So, He shows compassion, let me, let me help just point this out to us. It's only because Christ had compassion for us that we can come to faith in Christ apart from our legalistic tendencies. That's only because of His compassion for us. He had compassion on us, man, with physical impairment. He had compassion on us with spiritual, eternal, infinite impairment. And thank God He did, Right? Compassion on us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, I pray this. I pray that we would be diligent in our study of the word and submit to it and let it filter our traditions. So, true followers of Jesus are compassionate people. The next thing I think we see is that they're compassionate people acting in humility. Acting in humility. I promise in the next. Multiple points are much shorter than the first one. Uh, But there was a lot to get through in that first one. Let's go. Luke chapter 14, verse 7. Jesus says, Now he told a parable, or Luke says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So now, as someone who follows Christ, Now it's a question of pride versus humility. Pride versus humility. So Jesus here is talking about a wedding feast. This would be very similar to ours today. People care where they are seated at a wedding feast, right? At a wedding celebration, where they sit is very important. If you don't think so, then next time ask one of the parents to sit at the back during the ceremony. It would not be a good day. Uh, they would not like that. This is a valuable thing. And, and that's okay. I'm not I'm just kind of poking fun, but, but uh, it's a valuable thing. This is very, very similar, although uh, different, but very, very similar. So Jesus is pointing out that these people cared what others thought about them, and so they choose to sit at the places of honor. So if you imagine this table uh, is the place of honor, so when I come in, because I think I'm distinguished, I'm going to go sit there. And he's saying what happens is is that you who think you should be exalted, the host is going to come in and tell you to go sit over there, and then in shame, you're going to walk from there to go sit in a place that's less distinguished. Instead, go humble yourself and sit in the place of less distingu- uh, that is less distinguished, and then let the host come and say, friend, come sit over here. Come sit at the place for more distinguished people. So when it comes to pride, we as Christians must think I want, you, I want you to remind us very, very quickly of the humiliation of Christ. It's a doctrine I don't think we study enough, but the humiliation of Christ, Christ humbled Himself by becoming a man even to the point of death on a cross. The fact of becoming a man is humbling. It's God humbling Himself. Think about that. And then the fact that He would then die and the humiliation there So as a Christian, we cannot seek our exaltation and Christ's exaltation at the same time. It doesn't happen that way. When you're seeking your exaltation, in whatever way that might be, whether it might be, well, you think your opinion is so valuable that everyone must hear it, exalting yourself. You think you deserve the place of honor. You're exalting yourself. You cannot do that and follow Christ at the same time. Maybe think about a moment when you're being rebuked for sin in your life and you must justify what you did in order to maintain your approval, exalting yourself in order for that person to still think highly of you. Again, you're exalting yourself. You're not following Christ at that moment. But if we think about this, a place of humility is where we belong. I mean, think about this. Who do we worship? We worship a God who is holy. And we rebelled against Him, all of us. But he didn't leave us in that state, thank God. So Christians, let me ask you this question. What have you found helpful in revealing your own pride? Part of this is where the community of Christ comes in. This is where the, the church comes in to help us with our pride. Uh, right? Some of you, the ones with pride are not happy about that, but yes. That's where the community comes in to help us work through our pride. Uh, just some very basic helpful things here, I hope. Maybe what simple steps have you found to help yourself with humility? Or maybe you know you struggle with pride and humility. So uh, there's a great book by C.J. Mahaney called Humility. In the back, he lists some things to help you with humility. He, I'm just going to read these quickly. We won't have time to get them down. He says reflect on the wonder of the cross of Christ. Begin your day by acknowledging your dependence upon God and your need for God. Begin your day expressing gratefulness to God. Practice spiritual spiritual disciplines. Study the attributes of God. Study the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace would be... uh, Election, total depravity, perseverance of the saints. Study the doctrines of grace. Study the doctrine of sin. Invite and pursue correction. Someone struggled with pride. That one's hard. Respond humbly to trials. Identify evidences of grace in others. So those following Christ are truly humble. So where is your humility at today versus your humility three months ago? It's a good gauge of are you growing in your walk with Christ? So true followers of Jesus are compassionate people acting in humility and next in love. And love. Luke 14, he says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So what does Jesus want from his followers? And here I think we have a uh, drawing the distinction between altruism and self-regard. You go, what is altruism? Altruism is selfless concern for the well-being of others. Love. Loving them. Selfless concern for the well-being of others. That's, That's the difference here. Versus self-regard. So I'm going to do what, I want, what I'm doing here so that I get something back. Versus do what I'm doing here because it's what I need to do. Because this is reflective of God's character. Even though I may not and probably will not receive anything in return. Jesus' point is show love and care for others without being motivated by the potential of getting something in return. You see, the rich people being invited to the party could give something back. They might have their own party and then invite you to their party. But he's saying don't invite them. Instead, invite the ones who can give you nothing. Ultimately, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is not concerned with self-interest. God's kingdom is not concerned with you getting things in return for what you do. We don't do things so we get things back. Instead, our repayment will be in the future. Understand this. If you do something for reward now, that's your reward. So, Christians, let me ask you this question very practical. What are you here to get this morning? What are you here in this seat, in this place, to get this morning? What are you here to give this morning? even though you might not get anything in return. Are you here solely to get something and then leave with it? Or are you here to give something? Jesus is saying if you're here to get something and not give all of yourself, then your reward is here. You've just gotten your reward. When you walk out the store, if you came to get instead of to give, you got your reward. I don't know about you, but that's kind of depressing to me. But if you came to give yourself to the body, to give yourself in worship, to give yourself selflessly to each other, even though you may not get anything in return, your reward is in the future. And that reward, much grander than anything you could get leaving this place. See, Christian fellowship, like living in Christian community, Christian fellowship is not self centered. It cannot be, by definition. Fellowship is not self-regard. There is not this, I'm doing this so that I can get this back. I mean, you know how many church splits, like churches break up and, and, and just explode in a bad way because of this issue here? Because it's about what I can get, it's about what I want, it's about my preferences, it's about the way I want to serve, or it's about the way I want things to go. I have a good friend this past week that for these very same reasons, their church their church plant is about a year older than ours. Well, about the same age as ours, rather. And at one point, running like 150, 175 people on Sunday morning, and they just closed their doors. A whole bunch of people got mad over they wanted this, and this group wanted this, and, and basically cut the church in half, and nothing they can do. And that's just Horrid. Horrid. It breaks my heart, like, so what are you coming here to give? When you're talking with someone after church, what are you doing to give, even though you may not get anything back? What are you going to do this week to give, even though you may not get anything in return? Have you considered orienting your life so that you can be more giving of yourself for the kingdom? thought about that? you pray about that? How can I orient my life so that I can better impact the kingdom of God? So I can have less self-regard and more altruism. More selfless concern for the people around me. Maybe a career change. Maybe a decrease in your standard of living. Maybe an increase in offering. Are we a congregation that shows regard more for others than for ourselves? I think that's the question. We're talking about following Christ. So, true followers of Jesus are compassionate people acting in humility and love and then enjoying God's undeserved grace. 15 through 24, enjoying God's undeserved grace. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, so this is a Jew, and Jesus' presence says this, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets. And lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you, co- what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So what does Jesus want from his followers? I think the question is, are we going to live according to our own priorities, or are we going to enjoy God's undeserved grace? Are we going to live according to our own priorities, or are we going to enjoy God's undeserved grace or undeserved favor? So here's what happens. The man says, this is the guy sitting next to Jesus or at the table with Jesus. He says this, Blessed is everyone who will eat, this is verse 15, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So what he's talking about is he's talking about a future banquet in the kingdom of God. This is a future meal in the kingdom of God. I think he's referring to heaven. He doesn't realize, though, that the host of this feast that he speaks of is sitting right next to him. Like, this is Jesus. He's the one that's going to host that feast. The ultimate feast in the kingdom of God will be hosted by Christ himself. This man, though, think about it. This man was certain that as a teacher of the law, that he would be there. He was certain that he would be at this this table. And it's with that certainty of that man in mind then that Jesus proceeds with the parable. Let me help us very quickly understand this parable. The master of the house uh, is God. The servant is Jesus. The given excuses is the Jews or the Israelites, the Pharisees particularly. Particularly, the crippled and the poor, and those in the highway and hedges, I think are us, the Gentiles. But the the crippled, the those, I, I think, are referring more particularly to um, the Jews who were not were the outcasts, the least likely of the Jews to do so. Now, when we think about the excuses. So what happens is God says, I'm preparing this banquet, this big feast, my servant, go get them, sends Jesus, go get them. And what happens is they begin to give excuses. And God's banquet will be full. The kingdom will be full. Even though the the road that leads to heaven is narrow, it'll still be full. God has prepared the house, the perfect size for those whom He has invited and has ensured their arrival. And so he goes out to get them, and they begin to give excuses. Now, what about these excuses? I think what happens is we have the Israelites here who, are, who are then begin to give excuses to God. Now, when we think about these excuses, these excuses given were good things. Like, I have a wife, so I cannot go. Well, is having a wife a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. I mean, I have a field, or I have an ox to tend for. Is that a bad thing? That's not a bad thing. So what happens is they're avoiding God. They're giving excuses to God, but they're avoiding Him with good things. The question, I think, for us is, what good things are you using to avoid God? What good thing? And here's the thing. You might not do it intentionally. Matter of fact, I think most of us probably do not do this intentionally. Instead, we use good things and we think It's God, but we're just simply finding pleasure and fulfillment in the things of God versus God Himself. So, good things on this earth. Now, I want you to consider how the good things of this life can actually be the things that challenge our supreme loyalty to Christ. How the good things of this earth can actually challenge our loyalty to Jesus. I want to read this quote to you from John Piper. He says this, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do... When God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of His love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not His enemies, but His gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. All of God's good gifts are to be submitted to your supreme loyalty to the gift giver, to Christ. When we come together as a body, one of our goals here is to figure out how can we do that? How can we enjoy the gifts of God, but ultimately, having our supreme loyalty to Jesus? How can we do that? Ultimately, these good things are simply selfish priorities. So what selfish priorities do you have, a standard of living, a certain relationship? What selfish priorities, again, the standard of living, the certain relationship may not be bad, whatever else there might be, I mean, your situation is going to be different, but what selfish priorities take you away from genuinely living in community with God? What good things in your life have replaced God, and you probably don't realize it. Like there's probably things right now that you're worshiping that are good things, things that bring you joy and fulfillment. That are that's not God. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe your marriage brings you joy and fulfillment. That's what keeps you happy all the time. You know what? One day it's going to get hard enough that you're not going to find joy and fulfillment. You know what? You're going to want to leave. But if you find your joy and fulfillment in the one who created marriage, that good gift, then when those hard days come, your joy, your fulfillment's not shaken. Now, you may still have things to work through in your marriage, but but God is still good. He's still in control. You still love Him. So what does He call me to do? He's called me to be committed and to work through this. Totally different perspectives. One says it's about... These priorities that I have, and I'm going to find my joy and stuff here in the things of God, and then what you, what's going to happen is just like we're going to talk about next week with the prodigal son, if God is kind to you, he will allow you to pursue the things that he has given you until you find one day that there's nothing left except for the creator who created them. You find that they cannot fulfill you, they cannot satisfy you, and the only thing left that can satisfy and fulfill you is the God of the universe through his son Jesus Christ. So, the contrast continues. True followers of Jesus are compassionate people, acting in humility and love, enjoying God's undeserved grace and living for Christ's dreams and desires. Luke 14, verse 25-35. Dreams and desires. Excuse me. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life... whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what does Jesus want? What does Jesus require of His followers? Here He contrasts, I believe, the immediate pleasures of this world versus the external pleasure of God. Our immediate pleasure. So look at the immediate pleasures. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, your own life. What Jesus calls us to. uh, Think about this. So he talks about hating mother and father. Right? And there's clearly been, you know, cults and things like that that have taken a hold of that verse and totally destroyed it. But clearly we're called to honor our parents and love our enemies and care for our households. I mean, God so clearly, Jesus does not mean like you now act in hatred towards them. That's not what Jesus means. I think what he means is he's calling us to love him in such a way that everything else looks like hatred. It doesn't mean that that we we actually hate them, but we love Christ so supremely that in comparison, even though to the world this looks like love, compared to my love for Christ, it looks like hatred. Um, I preached on this passage uh, you know about a year ago or two years ago something like that and uh, we talk about this I think this is helpful I think think the better picture is more like this God deserves all of our love I think that's what Christ is talking about all of our love goes to God and then to our spouse to our mother our father our brothers our sisters our community all those things then we love out of that love for God It's more practical. It's more like God is loving them through us. So I mean, think about that like in marriage. Like, what happens when your marriage begins to get rough? Well, if all of your love is going to God, God's got endless and and plenty of love to continue loving that spouse even when they've done something that's hurt you deeply. Right? But if it's your love, your love runs out. It will run out. God has not made you infinitely loving. He is, though, selfless in His love. So He says, carrying your cross. Let's think about the cross. The cross is the center of Christianity, right? If you Think about this. As the Son of God became a man, lived a perfect life, He chose to die on the cross and take God's wrath that we deserve. He did not deserve that. Those who repent and trust in Him have their sins paid for because He's our substitute. He dies in our place. In this, we are forgiven of our sin and made right with God. We have to place our trust, though, in His work. I mean, so this cross, I mean, being a Christian isn't easy. Like, here's the deal. If your life as a Christian is easy, then something is wrong. Something is wrong. I mean, this doesn't mean that you, you go around and proclaim this big, pious spirituality in order to make everyone hate you. But instead, you live a gospel-changed life. And And I think we think of the carrying our cross, we think of that just strictly in my boldness to proclaim the gospel. It's the same thing with the fear of man. We think of that just strictly as in I shouldn't fear man, I should go proclaim the gospel. And when we think of this carrying our cross and, and the difficulty of that, we think of just strictly living out the gospel in our, in our lives and the people around us. And I think that's a, that's a great application. But I think there's more to it. Like, there's more. I think what happens is the idea of struggling with sin. It gets a little closer to the heart and dealing with what's going on inside of here, carrying my cross. Because that sin that's in my heart, underneath the weight of the cross, can become unbearable when it's not repented of. So as I'm carrying this cross and following Jesus, it's not just about, is it hard because I'm making people mad at me as I talk about Jesus? But is the gospel transforming my life here that's then leading to proclamation. I think oftentimes we don't proclaim the gospel because we don't have any gospel change in our life to talk about. But if God is changing our hearts from the inside as we carry this cross, then we will. We, we can't help but talk about that. What has God changed in you? So yes, carrying this cross is hard. Yes, it does involve persecution and suffering. But the point, let's say, if it's not hard, something is wrong. Jesus is calling us to give up absolutely everything for him. So if we, if we go back to the beginning, how have we marketed Jesus? If you come to this Jesus, he'll give you your best life now, and this will be all awesome. Is that what Jesus says at Luke 14? No. He actually says quite the opposite. He calls you to give up everything. Have you ever, in sharing the gospel with someone, told them, you know, if you begin to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you everything? Like how Dr. Platt uh, tells a story of of going to this seminary, uh, I forget which country it was in, but some country overseas, where all of those graduating from school, in order to graduate from seminary, they had to plant so many churches and see like so many people converted. And that year, like two of their classmates had been killed out planting churches. Um, So... Talk about giving everything. What if you told someone that to follow Jesus you could lose everything? Maybe even your life. You think that would be good marketing in the United States? I think not. Do You think the church would be pure with only those who truly wanted to follow Jesus instead of um, a bunch of fakers? Yeah, it would be. Jesus is calling you to give up absolutely everything for Him. Your traditions, your comfort, your cars, your children, your marriage, all must be submitted to Him for use. All those things. I like what Mark Devers said this. He says, when we accept Jesus' call, when we accept Jesus' call to carry the cross, we're really confessing that it belongs to us anyways. When we pick up the cross, we're really just saying, you know, this, Jesus, I know you carried it, but I, I know that it should have been mine. It should have been mine. It's what we deserve. But Christ as our substitute, and by following Him we acknowledge that we are sinners. We have no right to make demands. We take up our cross. The idea of taking up our cross is to deny any selfish and immediate pleasures, and instead seeking the pleasures of Christ. What does He want? What are His desires? His dreams. So what sacrifices, we're in closing here, almost done. What sacrifices are you making for Christ that validate That you're following him and you say well don't judge me well the bible gives us very clear calling to judge those things what sacrifices are you making that validate that you're following Jesus I read my bible every day what sacrifices The truth is we can deceive ourselves in that. You know what I'm saying? And that's where the body has to come in and help us work through those things. And obviously the Holy Spirit through the body and the Holy Spirit through prayer. I'm not talking about earning our salvation. That's why I specifically chose the word validate. Like it gives evidence to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Not earns the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life that gives evidence for what's going on. Notice Jesus' presentation. He says there's a cost to consider. When we present the gospel, do we think of the cost? Do we think of the cost even in our own lives? And Jesus makes it clear in the image that follows. He says a follower who doesn't actually follow is worthless. I mean, did you hear that? Like, if you claim to be a Christian, but you're not following, he says you're worthless. I know those are harsh words. It's what he says. Look at it at the end of 14. He says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Not my words, his he says you're worthless. A Christian who doesn't follow Christ is no Christian. He requires everything. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to church, doesn't matter how guilty you feel about your sin, doesn't matter how much money you've given, doesn't matter how many times you've hung curtains or rolled up cables. Or are you following Christ? We need to lovingly help each other see if there's an issue here. Hey, man, I don't see the fruit of this in your life. I'm concerned about you, brother. I'm concerned about you, sister. We need to be able to see the fruit of the Spirit in each other's lives and celebrate that and encourage that, right? Now, we justify our lack of saltiness often by our circumstances, saying, I'm too busy. Or I've been going through something really hard. That's the thing. you put salt in something, it becomes salty. Like, are you salty? You should be salty in everything. Not in the things you choose to be salty in. So the the idea is to learn to be salty even in those busy times or in those really hard times. Again, because the gospel is not something that just we dribble here on this part of our life and this part of our life and then, and then live the way we want to any other time. It's, the gospel transforms all of our lives. So, is he supreme or are you supreme? Is Christ supreme in your life or are you supreme? Because if it's anything else other than Jesus, it's ultimately then about what you can get. And that makes, makes you supreme in this. So, the thesis for this morning. I want you to think about these words. Like, I know, like, those are some very difficult words for us to talk about and being told worthless. And I, I know, I know that's hard and, and it doesn't make me any friends, but um, it didn't make Jesus a whole lot of friends either. But this is what he says in this passage the true followers of Jesus are compassionate people, acting in humility and love. And then listen, Enjoying God's undeserved grace and living for Christ's dreams and Christ's desires. We get to do that if you have placed your trust in Christ. We get his undeserved grace and we get his dreams and his desires. So, my question is this What does Jesus want? Of you. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I want to pray. We're going to sing, give us the time to reflect, and then we'll we'll be dismissed. But let's pray. Father, what is it that you want from us? Father, I think your text is very clear, and we may try to justify it. We may try to say that this doesn't work with my schedule, or we may try to plan other fancy ways to avoid your demands on our lives. We may come up with traditions that help us to feel good about our self-righteousness, but help us to ultimately avoid the free righteousness of Jesus Christ. What is it, Father, that we are exchanging for you? For what is it that's on this earth that we are worshiping and finding delight in more than the Creator Himself? Father, Strip us of those things. Help us to live in light of who you are. Help us to enjoy your undeserved favor and grace in our lives. Father, as we begin to sing, there's a fountain filled with blood. From Emmanuel's veins. Father, I pray that the richness of these words would remind us that this undeserved favor, that this ability, the freedom to act in humility, the freedom to love, the freedom to enjoy the grace, the freedom to live for Christ's dreams and His desires cost Christ everything and was made possible by His death, burial, and resurrection. Father, I love You. I pray that you would work in your people's hearts even in these next few moments. And it's in your son's name we pray.